Good morning. Please come in so we can get started. Good morning. My name is Tom Myers. I am Associate Dean of International Education. It's my pleasure this morning to introduce my colleague and friend, Steve Nault. Steve is an historian. He came to Goshen College in 1999. His specialization is American history, but if you know Steve, you know his passion is Amish and Mennonite history. Steve is one of the most prolific, amazing young scholars that I know. He published his first book at the age of 24 and continues to publish uh, in some years, including this one, publishing more than one book in an academic year. That in itself is an amazing fact. He is currently at work on a major project to describe the diversity of Amish settlements across North America. This follows on the heels of our project that studied the 20 Amish settlements in the state of Indiana. Steve is a native of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And you may be aware that tomorrow marks the first anniversary of the tragic events in that small town, actually crossroads, in southern Lancaster County known as Nickel Mines. Steve has recently published a book, which, along with two colleagues, which attempts to answer the question that was asked repeatedly at the time of the shooting and continues to be asked. Why did they respond the way they did to the murders of children? Why didn't they seek vengeance, offering forgiveness instead of expressing anger? These are the questions that Steve will address in today's convocation. Welcome, Steve. One year ago, October 2nd, it was a Monday morning, a beautiful, clear day in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a non-Amish man backed his pickup truck into the schoolyard and up to the door of the West Nickel Mines Amish School. Inside the one-room school were 28 children, 28 students, and four adults, four adult women, the teacher and three other adult visitors that day. The intruder, Charles Roberts, was a milk truck driver well-known in the area, on that morning, however, he arrived at the school heavily armed, ordering everyone to lie on the floor. The teacher and one other adult dashed to the door and escaped for help. Startled that his plans, apparently to take hostages and uh, molest the women in the room, were going awry because the teacher and another adult had escaped. Roberts angrily and menacingly ordered the other adults and boys out of the building then nailed the door shut, pulled the blinds to darken the room, sent the remaining 10 girls to lie at the front of the room, and tied their legs together. He told them he was angry at God, had been angry for nine years, that he couldn't forgive God, and that he couldn't forgive himself. By this time, the police had begun arriving at the school, responding to a panicked phone call that the distraught teacher had made after running almost a mile to the nearby farmhouse and calling 911. Realizing that the police were at hand, and in fact were asking him through a bullhorn to surrender, Roberts himself called 911 on his cell phone and told the responder that he would shoot everyone if the police did not leave. He hung up and immediately began to open fire, getting off 13 shots in 8 seconds, killing 5 girls, wounding the other 5, then fired one shot through the window at the police 
and then killed himself. Within an hour and a half, this story literally became news around the world. Not, we should note here, because male violence against girls was newsworthy. That theme, in fact, was seemingly lost in the reporting that followed or was assumed to be a commonplace. Instead, the story that first flew around the globe was that the last safe place the rest of the world had imagined, rural Amish schools, had just been added to the growing list of school shooting sites. Very quickly, however, the media story shifted from one of lost innocence to one of bewilderment and even consternation, because by Wednesday it was clear that the victimized Amish community was reacting in very strange ways. Their grief was intense, that much was clear, but they were not converting their grief and shock into calls for retribution. True, the killer was dead, and the Amish, uh, but still, the Amish did not engage in the most common form of revenge that we see in Western society, namely attacking one's character or degrading, in this case, his memory. While other neighbors, writing into the newspaper and calling on uh, phone lines to leave messages for the newspaper, uh, said that they hoped Roberts was enjoying burning in hell, the Amish said only that they trusted he was meeting a merciful God. Nor did they ever imply that his apparent mental illness was evil or a moral failing, again, as some other non-Amish observers did. Instead, they talked about him as a fellow human being, troubled, to be sure, but one whose memory warranted respect and whose survivors needed love and compassion. Within a few hours of the shooting, they reached out in sympathy to his widow, his parents, and his parents-in-law, assuring them that they would not scapegoat them for what had happened. In fact, one, one Amish man who was among the small group that went um, about 7 o'clock that evening to uh, Robert's widow's home to extend sympathy to her, months later, the most difficult part for him, emotionally difficult part of recounting all the, things of, all the events of that day was to describe how they had arrived at the Roberts family home to find them all alone, sitting virtually in the dark and um, contrasting that with um, the Amish home from which he had just come in which there was deep grief but uh, a house that was uh, filled with uh, mourners and, and uh, family and, and uh, church community. Six days later, when most non-Amish neighbors in the area stayed away from Roberts' burial, the Amish did not, ended up being more than half of the mourners who were present, again hugging his family and crying together. This number included Amish parents who had just the day before buried their own daughters. About the same time, the ad hoc Amish committee set up to oversee money that came pouring in from around the world for the shooting victims announced that they would be diverting some of the money to a second fund for the Roberts family. Now this seemingly was news. And it was a story that reporters and the public at large was unprepared for. They didn't know what to make of it. We didn't know what to make of it. I have to, on one level, include myself. Some people praised Amish forgiveness and jumped to apply its example to a host of other social and political issues. Others denounced Amish forgiveness, condemning it as too fast, emotionally unhealthy, and a denial of innate human needs to seek revenge. For the past year, as Thomas said, two colleagues and I have been uh, on something of a quest, both academic and personal, to understand the dynamics of what happened in the wake of the Nickel Mine shooting. We came to this as people who 
knew something about the Amish and Amish culture and history. We came as parents and a grandparent of young children. We came as people who believe that forgiveness is a good thing, but a difficult and complex thing. There was a lot we didn't know. Take, for example, the simple phrase, the Amish forgave. What did that mean? What was forgiveness in this case? Why forgive? It turns out that the Amish have a far from simplistic understanding of forgiveness. True, some things were clear from the start. The decision to forgive came quickly, instinctively. The Amish knew they wanted to forgive. They knew it so clearly that they could express it immediately and publicly, even when they didn't at first feel that way. One Amish grandmother laughed when we asked if there had been a meeting to decide if the gunman should be forgiven. No, she and others said, forgiveness was a decided matter, decided long before October 2nd ever raised the occasion for forgiveness. At the same time, this grandmother and others made clear that forgiving is hard work emotionally and that it was not over simply when the first group of Amish people went to visit the widow's family. The decision to forgive and expressing that desire with words and actions, they said, are only first steps. Many of those close to the tragedy made use of professional counselors and a year later continue to work with their grief through a variety of of ways. And this, they say, should be expected. As Jesus said, a single offense must be forgiven 70 times 7. That takes a long time. It's not something that can happen quickly. It's important here, perhaps, to clarify what the Amish believe forgiving is and is not. It's not, they would say, pretending that nothing happened or saying the offense wasn't so bad. It's not a fatalistic acceptance of whatever happens. Nor is it pardon. It's not saying, forgiveness is not saying that there should be no consequences for actions. Had Charles Roberts lived, the Amish, no doubt, would have supported his prosecution and imprisonment for the sake of everyone's safety. A number of people clarified that It wouldn't support the death penalty because that would um, have robbed Charles Roberts of the opportunity to to repent or to get the help that he needed. But um, beyond that, they were not saying that forgiveness means there there should be or should have been no consequences for what happened. Forgiveness instead, as the Amish describe it, and this is maybe uh, mixing some of their words with some some of my words, forgiveness is about giving up. It's about giving up your right to revenge and giving up feelings of resentment, giving up bitterness and hatred, replacing them with compassion towards the offender, treating the offender as a fellow human being. This giving up, ufgeba, I say in Pennsylvania Dutch, is hard work, even if the decision to forgive is settled. When a grieving grandfather, asked by reporters less than 48 hours after two of his grandchildren had been slain, He was out on an early Wednesday morning um, walking around the schoolhouse and all of a sudden was caught in the glare of NBC news lights and they said, have you forgiven the killer? He said, in my heart, yes. With those words, he conveyed a commitment to move towards forgiveness, offered with the faith that loving feelings would eventually replace distraught and angry ones. Other Amish people speaking the folk wisdom of experience explained forgiveness this way. The acid of hate destroys the container you store it in. Why not give it up? Why not give up your bitterness? Why let the person have power over you? 
Forgiving, the Amish affirm here and in many other examples, is not just good for the person who is forgiven, but it's also good for you. If forgiveness is in some ways about self-denial, it's not about self-hatred or self-loathing. The Amish believe that forgiveness is something that, again, is good for you and not just for the person being forgiven. But if this Amish explanation of forgiveness is more complicated than many of the popular presentations of Amish forgiveness, which seem to suggest that the Amish stoically stuff their feelings in a box, it still begs the question, why? Why and how did the Amish forgive the way they did, in the way that they understand forgiveness? The first thing they cite, perhaps not surprisingly, is um, theological. Jesus tells us to forgive and God expects us to forgive, they say. They immediately point to Jesus' parables on forgiveness, and especially to the Lord's Prayer with its key line, forgive us as we forgive others. This line rings loudly in Amish ears, um, in part because the Lord's Prayer is such a familiar part of Amish life. At least in eastern Pennsylvania, the uh, really daily liturgical pattern for Amish life involves praying the Lord's Prayer about eight times a day, ten times on Sundays. There's actually, um, in, in, again, in eastern Pennsylvania at least, Amish people are discouraged from creating their own prayers, but instead are expected to repeatedly um, pray the Lord's Prayer as the prayer. And so this line, forgive us as we forgive others, is very well known. It's also, as uh, they point out, the only aspect of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus himself underscores and repeats. As soon as the Lord's Prayer is over in, in Matthew chapter 6, it's followed by this statement for, from Jesus, which is not part of the prayer, but essentially repeats that aspect of the prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not, do not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So this is not only in the Lord's Prayer, but they see this as something that, that is uh, emphasized by Jesus himself. In a sense, the Amish believe that God's forgiveness of them is dependent in some way on their forgiving others. Not that they're trying to manipulate God into forgiving them, but they see their relationship with God and their relationship with other people as so closely bound together that they cannot be separated. Their ability to forgive is dependent upon God's forgiving them, but God's forgiving them is also dependent upon their forgiving others, and these things cannot be separated. In fact, um, we might say forgiveness is a sort of religious obligation for the Amish, but if forgiveness is a duty, it doesn't stand alone as a cold commandment to be born in isolation or only when there's a really difficult situation at hand. Amish forgiveness is supported by hundreds of years of Amish history and culture, hundreds of, hundreds of years of telling stories and of cultural habits that celebrate forgiveness and that make the terribly difficult response at Nickel Mines nonetheless seem normal. To the degree that forgiveness involves giving up, forgiveness is actually central to Amish life every day, even when there's no criminal offense to forgive directly. In many ways, the essence of Amish life is giving up, giving up the self to group, to God, from how one gets dressed in the morning to what work one goes to after one is dressed, how one spends one's leisure time. A lot of Amish life is about giving up. So if forgiveness is also about giving up, giving up one's right to revenge, giving up grudges, 
Amish culture has primed its members in a host of daily practices that doesn't necessarily make forgiving easy, but it makes it a part of something that is like the rest of life, not an unnatural act, uh, as it might appear to outsiders whose culture resists giving up and celebrates getting, getting one's due. So Amish people emphasize the difficulty of forgiveness, but they don't express the surprise that forgiveness would be unnatural. They see forgiveness as a difficult but natural thing, something that's connected to the rest of life, not something that runs counter to the rest of life. They're also very quick to acknowledge that they are far from perfect when it comes to giving up, that this is something uh, that they work towards and not something that they have always perfectly achieved. This understanding of forgiveness also means that for the Amish, forgiveness is not an individual matter. It was not the job of the wounded girls or the shell-shocked boys to forgive. In fact, their parents say they hope that someday these children will feel compassion for Charles Roberts, but they haven't pressed their children on this point. They haven't pressed them to forgive. Amish forgiveness instead was um, collectively shared in, the, in uh, the wider Amish and church community. There wasn't just one victim or 10 victims or uh, 28 victims. There were many victims. Any sort of um, sin or evil like this, the Amish say, affects the whole community. Everyone is wounded and damaged. So when Amish people express forgiveness or extend forgiveness, they don't have to puzzle over whether it's right for them to forgive on behalf of someone else, which is a question that has puzzled ethicists in more individually oriented societies. Instead, they forgive on their own behalf because they see the emotional pain as broadly shared and the responsibility of forgiveness as something that applies to them as well as people that the rest of us might see as the real victims. Although the Amish never anticipated the horror of nickel mines, they were prepared to respond to it a long time before they needed to. And I suppose that statement then raises a larger question. What does this mean for the rest of us? In the days after nickel mines, there were many editorials and commentators who believed that they knew what this meant for the rest of us. My colleagues and I were less sure. It's a question that we've been wrestling with as we worked with this issue, and a question that many people have been asking us. If it's the case that Amish understandings of forgiveness and their particular responses are rooted so deeply in the specifics of who they are and who they have been for so long, if they are culturally formed to such a degree, does it mean anything for those of us who are not Amish? Further, even for the Amish, forgiveness in this case took a particular shape because of the specific nature of the event, of, of the offense. The killer was known in the community. He was now dead. Some Amish folks said it would have been harder to forgive Charles Roberts, even harder, if he were still alive, if they had to face him in person. Others said it would have been more difficult to forgive him if he had molested girls before he had killed himself. It doesn't, I don't think, diminish the terror of the Nickel Mine Schoolhouse to note that the situation of forgiveness here is different from situations in which an offense, even a relatively less severe one, is repeated again and again and again. That's a different situation <clears throat> in which questions of forgiveness and pardon are perhaps even more complicated. So for all these reasons, I'm cautious about identifying quickly and applying any lessons of nickel mines too broadly in a one-size-fits-all pattern. But more to the point, I'm cautious because of what we do learn 
from Amish forgiveness. Amish forgiveness is not easily transferable because it grows out of their collective life and culture. And that's where the rest of us need to start as we explore the possibilities of forgiveness. Not with Amish culture, but with our own and with the many cultures that all of us create as we go about life. Theologian Miroslav Volf has said, uh, this is a paraphrase, but if you want to forgive, if you want to be a forgiving person, surround yourself with forgiving people. Treating nickel mines as an inspirational story or a motivational story won't change much because forgiveness is too difficult and too complicated to just begin happening because we've heard one motivational story. But it is the case that the stories we tell each day, the images that we surround ourselves with, the heroes we celebrate, the communities of friendship and worship to which we give ourselves will do a great deal to shape how we forgive and the kind of world that makes forgiving so necessary. Such shaping and reshaping is hard work. It's hard to distinguish between forgiveness and pardon sometimes. It's hard to know sometimes when reconciliation is possible and when it needs more time. Our culture celebrates violence on many levels. Even more, it insists that the most innate human need is to get one's due and that your most fundamental right is retribution. In such a setting, giving and forgiving are deeply countercultural. These are things for which we need discerning communities. The Amish and I would recommend Christian communities long before we think we need them. Last October, one person who began reflecting on forgiveness and community in the Lord's Prayer was a songwriter named John McCutcheon, who some of you know because he has performed uh, often here at the Goshen College Music Center. And he offered a song as a contribution to the language and images that we may take with us into this difficult work. He might write a different song today, um, but he still offers it as he wrote it just a few days after he heard uh, the news. It's also part of the wider community of which I'm a part here, since this song was uh, suggested to me by printing and mailing director Lyle Miller, who knew I was working with these sorts of of issues. So I'm going to um, end today with the song, not because I think the song is the final word, but it's um, one more piece of uh, the task of working toward forgiveness in our individual and collective lives. Following the song, you're dismissed.